I mean, if I didn't have a framework of art, I don't think I would be able to accomplish all of these things that people, like some people see as brave things. I think this distance that art gave me really just gave me comfort. I was just like, well, art is not a crime. Print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. On this special episode of Hello Print Friend, my guest is Nadia Tolokonikova, creator of Pussy Riot. Nadia was first thrust onto the world stage in 2012, when Pussy Riot members were arrested for performing their punk prayer in the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow. Since then, Nadia has continued her practice of using performance art as activism, and I got the chance to speak with her just weeks before the opening of her solo exhibition at Container in Santa Fe. In this episode, we talk about her early art influences growing up in one of the most polluted and northernmost cities in the world, how she stays loving, open, and connected when making art about all the hard things in the world, and making prints with Shepard Fairey. Hi, Nadia. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm really good. I'm good. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me. I know this is a really busy and exciting time for you, but I'm excited to learn more about what you're doing and help spread some of that good word. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. So, Nadia, you grew up in a mining town in, in northern Siberia. What presence did art have in that early part of your life, in that context? Well, we had art books, and it was my window to the art world. And as a kid, I would refuse to have a, a nap in the middle uh-huh. of the day, like my parents, my grandparents wanted, wanted me to do. And instead, I would just take the art books and they would come check on me and see if I'm sleeping. And I was trying to throw the books away and just like, <laughs> pretend like I'm sleeping, but they, they knew what's going on. As I'm, I'm actually refusing to take, take a fucking nap. I don't have a nap. <laughs> So, um, so it was books, and my dad also really obsessed with arts. He he's an artist himself. Well, he's a musician. He's a writer, philosopher. Um, also, uh, I'd say a conceptual artist. He never got a chance to realize his potential, but he had all the knowledge it takes. Just never had an opportunity in his life to realize it. And so he taught me early on the differences. I mean, like, like for our guests in the house, it was like almost like a trick that Nadia can, when she was four or five, she could make, she could see the difference between Rococo and Barocco if presented the picture in architecture. <laughs> I think right now I cannot see the difference, but when I was four, <laughs> allegedly I could. <laughs> so my, my family opened up a lot of that for me. And then later... I I got internet when I was 15, so that was another window. Yeah, absolutely. And so can you talk to us a bit about 
your decision to study philosophy when you went to college and then how that later influenced your art practice. I wanted to study something without actually studying anything because I didn't want to get any actual profession. And my mom wanted me to become a lawyer or economist, two professions that seemed to be able to bring you a good future. And I didn't want I didn't want to have an actual profession. And also I felt like it's really early for me to decide what I want to do with my life. I was 16 when I finished the school. It's, it's a normal age at the time. Usually kids would finish the school at 17. I started a year earlier, so I was 16. So I was a baby and I knew that. And so I wanted to just to buy some time to think about the world, my relationship with the world and explore myself and move to a big city where I can meet people who are like-minded because it's uh, really difficult in small provincial city of Norilsk, partly because most of the ambitious people, they try to leave the city. And it doesn't mean that everyone who stays is bad. It's just that they're not, they're not, do not have this maximalism of that I had in me so I wasn't able to connect with them at the same level so I wanted to move to Moscow and study something really broad and just get humanitarian knowledge and then figure out um, what I wanted to do I knew vaguely that I wanted wanted to do contemporary art but I needed to find like-minded people in the community and then figure out the the, the medium of art itself I really connected with what you just said. I'm also a philosophy major in that sense of wanting to get at sort of what traditional school maybe doesn't offer you, which is what lies underneath of that, like, what is life made of? What is art made of? And not something that's just a funnel right into a job. So I definitely understand with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to ask young people, I think, to just jump right in uh, into choosing their profession. I think this is the way it used to be in uh, Moscow State University where I ended up studying. So they used to have few years of philosophy for everyone. It doesn't matter who you're going to be later, whether you can become a lawyer or a doctor, you would always study philosophy at first and then it will inform your decision. You will be able to make an actual informed decision who you want to be in life. I I have often said that I think everyone would be better off if they were, if they chose to go to school, if they were made to go through a few rounds of philosophy, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And so what was your first introduction to performance art? You said that you knew you were interested in contemporary art, but performance itself being an artistic medium, when do you remember discovering that was an option for self-expression? So a couple of people, one I've heard about Alec Kulik, who made a performance where he behaved like a dog running around and biting people. And I really loved it. It really, it really resonated with whatever was 14, 15, and obviously a lot of angst. So I felt like he understands what I'm going through. And my parents don't, so I love <laughs> I love contemporary art more than I love my parents. Not now, but at the time, I was a terrible teenager. I, yeah, that's I was very in- teenager of you. <laughs> I don't think anyone could blame you. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I was in a major fight with my with my parents about my future. So I was trying to find support system somewhere else. And so Alek Kulik and Dmitry Pregov, another contemporary artist and poet, sculpture, performance artist, visited my home city of Norilsk when I was 14. And my mom just recently reminded me that actually she told me about that festival of contemporary art and culture, which which I completely forgot because (laughs) I just erased my mom from from my early (laughs) memories like a complete asshole. I was just like, I did it all on my own. And mom just recently was just like, yeah, I I told you that this is happening. I told you you might like it. (laughs) I was like, okay, okay, okay. So... It wasn't all just me. It wasn't just all about me. So to her regret, I think she told me about this festival. And I I saw Dmitry Prigov and his accommodation of his performances, which certainly changed my life. And I got to see him in person. I didn't get to meet him, but I was so impressed by his presence and by his couple of performances that he did in front of the audience, I wanted to cry and jump and and laugh. And I, I did all of it because I didn't have any self-control, I guess. That's why I became a performance artist. So, <laughs> um, so I saw the performance that he did. He read a piece of poetry and it was just incredible. I was really happy. And I decided I'm going to follow him in Moscow. Um, I knew that I'm going to go study in Moscow, but I, I've decided I'm going to do anything it takes to to meet him and to maybe work in his studio. I didn't even know if he has a studio, but just be close and follow everything he does and do something similar and learn from him. And in a couple of years, I did move to Moscow and I did find him and, and we met and uh, it's really had a profound effect on on me and me and my collective that I helped to co-found. But we've decided to make an action with him. So we were preparing this performance piece. And on the way to making this performance, he, he had a heart attack and he mm. died in two weeks, which was an absolutely formative story for, for my life because I felt a little bit like an adult at the time because he like for the first time in my life I was still 17 but I felt like an adult because he was a hero of mine and guru and I I wanted to be like him and then he died basically on the way to to make a performance with me and my comrades and I felt responsibility of Mm. continuing this past yeah yeah why do you feel that performance art is such a powerful vehicle for activism. You know, it really engages people I know, but from your career with it, why performance in particular kind of lights people up? I think it gives you tools to do things that you wouldn't be able to accomplish just by yourself or with a small group of people. You can just reach bigger amount of people, I guess. But yeah, I don't have any big answer here is just I was drawn to performance and I was mm. drawn to politics and it happened to the coincide but I'm pretty sure any other medium would work as well like whether it's graffiti or even the painting still 
can be effective. Art amplifies your voice. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like performance art picked you then. I wanted to explore myself and I wanted to build something different from myself than I was. I was really shy and really didn't know how to, how to communicate my thoughts and feelings. And it was just like um, this little nerdy girl who had a lot of things to say. I felt like I have a lot of things to say, but I didn't know even how to start because I, mm. I couldn't raise my voice in the class and I couldn't raise my hand unless I've been asked to. So I had to completely re-teach myself on how to behave and how to be a human being and how to present myself to the world. And I think performance art is also really good for that. I've heard performance artists speak to before that that the anxiety that they feel, the prep that they do, the adrenaline that they feel, that personal experience is all part of the art itself. So it's the being received, but then it's also those often intense internal states leading up to it that are making manifest the artwork in and of itself as well. Mm -hmm. And you also get to distance yourself from gestures that you do because it's, and it allows you to be much more, much braver than you are in person. And then you kind of become this new version of yourself. You become a braver person just because you allowed yourself to make this gesture. You told yourself, oh, it's just, I mean, it's art. I mean, if I didn't have a framework of art, I don't think I would be able to accomplish all of these things that people, like some people see as brave things. I think this distance that art gave me really just gave me comfort. I was just like, well, art is not a crime. So I'm just using my body and surroundings as paints and brushes. And I have all the rights to do it, even though I knew <laughs> I'm technically having all the rights to do it. In fact, I'm living in a mm. authoritarian state and I'm going to get in troubles for that. But I was just like, no, but I'm an artist and it's just my expression. So I should be able to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. You've written that you're dedicated to staying loving, opening and connected and that sympathy and connection are the only truly reliable friends for someone who thrills at being finely tuned into the world, which I loved and very much agree with. And I'm hoping maybe you could speak to how you stay with that practice of staying loving, opening, connected and not bogged down or overwhelmed and how you protect sort of your mental health and your energy as someone whose practice engages so deeply with truly atrocities that are happening in the world, what is that balance and what is that practice like for you? I have to remind myself every day about importance, about the, the importance of staying open and flexible. It's funny when you when you read that the part I didn't even recognize it was me, but um, <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's something because it, it's it's always a it's always a fight between between forces that make me cynical and pragmatic and closed and just angry, angry closed down person versus those that I was writing about, and it's always. 
it's a real battle. It's like mm -hmm. Dostoevsky said that angels and demons are on the battleground and the battleground is hearts of human beings. So those are my versions of angels and demons. And it's it's the core of my existence to, to, to want to remain a kid until I die. And I say being a kid, I mean... Just leave this sense of curiosity and wondering about the world and what it has to present to you. But it's it's really really difficult. I, I I'm injured and <laughs> traumatized in so many levels, and so it takes work and work. I mean, it's it's a lot of things. <laughs> um, my my community, my family, my friends really help. Then looking up to your heroes and sheroes and and historical figures or artists that you love, like like Judy Chicago. If you read her biography, well, the recent biography, it's it's a beautiful history of history of resilience and strength and and persistence in the face of terrible attitude disgusting misogyny that mm -hmm. she had to experience and she still kept working on her art and though all of the major institutions and galleries rejected her for being too radical and she's just now in the last dozen of years I, I think she's getting the recognition that she definitely deserved for, for being a, a massive artist that she is and for, for an icon to change lives of so many women and women identifying people and just people who fight for gender equality and so reading biographies of people like Judy and she in particular and getting to know her and, and seeing her in action and seeing her just being really clear and persistent about what she wants to achieve. It, it really helps and teach me, teaches me a lot. Then what else helps? Just guess good food, mm -hmm. good <laughs> trying to be in good health and mm -hmm. exercising. Yeah. Yeah. So the physical, mental, spiritual caretaking, I think it sounds like it's, it's a, a holistic process for sure. Yeah. And TMS really helped. Most of the people do not know what it is, but it's a really good thing. So if any one of the listeners struggle with uncured depression, look up TMS. I'm not going to go deep into it, but it really helped me. I, I went through a course earlier this year and it was really life-changing. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for that. Can you tell us a bit about your upcoming solo exhibition at Container in Santa Fe? It started from Judy. Mm -hmm. um, Judy Chicago told Michael and Tonya, who are owners and founders of Container Gallery, that they need to travel to LA for the opening of Putin's Ashes at Jeffrey Deitch Gallery. And they did it. They were one of the first people who saw the exhibit and they collected two art pieces to to Putin's ashes pieces. They were the first collectors of this series. So it it meant 
a lot to me, their support and the fact that they, you know, not just jumped in Uber and showed up, but actually came from, from another city was totally incredible. And they told me we would like to have Putin's ashes in Santa Fe. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, like, people tell you all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. They don't really hear yeah. I me mean, normally. I was like, yeah, oh, of course, yeah, I'd love it. And then, and then normally, like in Los Angeles, people just disappear after that. So they didn't disappear. And they totally meant, meant it. So we're opening it on the 30th of June in Santa Fe to container gallery. I've created a lot of new work for this one and I'm still working on it. So right before this conversation and after I'm in my studio working on the series called Death by 1000 Cuts and it's a collection of prison shaves from metal that we found at the abandoned prison facility. I'm not going to tell you where. And so we created a lot of, I mean, 100, 100 of those shifts from, from that repurposed metal. And I'm framing them in my signature <laughs> furry frames. I'm really replicating this uh, labor, like forced labor situation that I had in Penal Colony. But it's weirdly therapeutic for me because this mm-hmm. time I'm not making police uniforms or military uniforms, but I'm making something deeply meaningful to me. So even though the labor itself can be really intense and I I never stop, I just stop working in the studio when I fall on the floor and cannot move anymore. So I really exhaust myself. I guess it's important for me to come physically through this same experience of exhausting myself, but for something that I really stand for and I understand and something that I chose to do versus something that was done to me. So the process itself becomes really important. Mm-hmm. And then there are prints. There are prints of Virgin Mary, Please Become a Feminist, with the Virgin Mary in the shape of vagina or vulva, more correctly. And that print became one of the reasons why I have a criminal case opened mm-hmm. on me, why I was put recently on Russia's most wanted list, because I was I was accused of a blasphemy, basically, of hurting religious feelings, which to me is an absolute nonsense, because if you take a look at most of the Images of Virgin Mary, she clearly looks like vagina. Yeah, and- she's already vulva. It's been <laughs> ever. <laughs> exactly. No, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so anyway, so now I mm, I have a criminal case because of that. So there, there will be this poster, printer, fuck, what how you call it, print. And then <laughs> another one, Kill the Sexist. Kill the Sexist print. It's pretty big. Just recently received them. Super happy about the way they came out, my mentor and the friend Shepard Ferry helped with overseeing the production. So it really cannot go wrong with Shepard. He, he's the god of Prince. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so he also, he also tweaked the letters a little bit and 
it became it just instantly became so much better because like I, I I sent him like a file with uh, with a poster in it and uh, he just tweaked a little bit and became instantly better. You totally can see the work of professional. So it's Kill the Sexist is our first song that we wrote in 2011 when we started Pussy Riot. So it's the Genesis origin piece. Oh, that's great. And I know that you'd worked with Shepard at least once before. Has your friendship with him kind of been your introduction to printmaking and bringing that into your artistic practice? Or were you interested or used it before then? I did prints, but I didn't do um, what they call fine art prints. I, I guess it was more posters for people who follow Pusserat, people to put in the wall if they, they want it. But it wasn't in this more like a fine art context. It was just really interesting for me to learn about the difference between paper, this cotton rag paper, and you know, all, all the intricacies. I did not know about any of that before, really, before our work with Shepard. So you you might be right. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I love to hear that you're, you're getting a bit of the printmaking bug, it sounds like. Once you start talking about paper, you know, there's no going back. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. It's it's really the world I want to learn so much more about. It seems like a great avenue for me because it's still affordable. So I feel like most of the people who follow Pusserat, they don't happen to be extra wealthy just because of the topics that we talk about. They're really explosive and we talk a lot about equality, inequality. And there are people who happen to have a lot of money who follow this, but the majority of followers are people like me. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like whether I won't be able to buy the work of artists, even if they, I really love them for $5,000, I would totally spend 500 bucks or 100 bucks. Yeah, absolutely. And, and print has such a wonderful history connected with activism and getting the word out and power to the people and all of that. So I, I, I'm really excited to see what the future holds for your collaboration in this medium. Well, Nadia, thank you so very, very much for joining me. It's been an honor and a pleasure to chat with you. And I just hope that you stay safe and keep making prints because we would love to see more from you in the print world. Oh, yeah. And also, um, Guerrilla Girls, definitely one of the major influences because I I just adore every single thing that they do. (laughs) Wonderful. I love that. I love them, too. So thank you again. And I look forward to seeing your exhibition in Santa Fe. Thank you. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Taryn Lasgun. Taryn is a Bikanese citizen and visual artist. His work centers around the process of color exploration and visual documentation of nature, cosmos, cultural narratives, 
and recollections of home. We'll talk about indigenous abstraction, the tradition of Bikani painted lodges, and studying at the prestigious Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.